0: Let's pray. I just invite you to bow. We said a couple weeks ago that uh, Jesus begins his work in our life with an invitation. And uh, he's going to do that again today. And so let's just think about these words we just sung. Take a moment. Take a deep breath. And just say thank you for his grace and his love and, and the things that he's done. And when you're ready, just quietly tell him in your heart. Lord, I, I want to hear your invitation this morning. Lord, hear our hearts. We are grateful, and yet we know that uh, uh, the things that you'll invite us to today uh, will will be driven by this love, this, this grace that we have experienced, this love you have for us, these great desires that you have for us. And so may our hearts be open uh, to all that you have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we all love shortcuts, don't we? I start the new year off and you uh, buy your kit, seven-minute abs, and you're ready to get going. And then all of a sudden, you notice a new infomercial, six-minute abs. And you're like, ah! Uh, Or or maybe the check engine light comes on in your car and you're thinking, no, 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 no. This is not a good time. I do not have time. I do not have money to fix my engine. So you grab your little kid's prayer card from camp. You place it in front of the check engine light. Kind of prayerfully, Lord... That should take care of it, or maybe your kid's high chair breaks and something like this. Uh, now, brighter Joseph, I know just because you guys duct tape people at, to walls at camp doesn't mean you can do that with your babies. So we will be watching you too. Okay, uh, we we all like shortcuts. We all want shortcuts. Uh, But shortcuts rarely lead to the real life change, the real fixes that we are looking for, do they? The path to life is usually long and hard. It, 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 it requires us uh, to take a path sometimes we don't want to take, but we know we need to take. And so uh, nothing. I, I think this idea comes out really, really clearly in chapter 25 of the story. So can I invite you to turn to chapter 25 of the story? Or if you want to follow along today, actually we'll be... Um, In Mark chapter 8, and you can actually turn to Mark 8 and I promise we will just be there and and you don't have to skip to eight other passages uh, today, but we are in a a series called The Story and We have been going through, we're in chapter 25, been using this book as kind of a a guide. It's a, a bridge version of the Bible. It helps us to chronologically go through the Bible to understand God's big story. And so each week, what we're able to do is look at one of the key stories in chronological order. One of the key stories, but see how every one of these stories is telling God's big story. That the Bible is about one story, God's story for you to be in relationship with him. And so every week as we try to discover what what one of these stories is trying to tell us about the big God story. We also see this fascinating thing that God is drawing us into his story. Your story and his story meant to be lived together. And uh, if, if there's anything that has stood out. In 25 chapters, and really from chapter one on, we saw this right from the beginning that our story has a divine problem. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down because this will help you kind of follow along what we're going. Because one thing we've discovered, if if I can kind of summarize a little bit of where we've been, our story has a divine problem. We saw that from the very beginning, God's desire was to dwell with us, to be in relationship with us. Yet from the very beginning, we rejected God. In fact, there's, there's this kind of great image of how it's supposed to be, but how it really is. And so we see that when, when man sinned, that there was this moment uh, that in the cool of the day that God was walking through the garden. And there's this picture of how it's supposed to be that God would come and he would walk with, with, with man and he would, he would uh, walk with Adam and Eve and he would, he would share uh, a life with them. But we find them hiding And and that's what sin does. Our rebellion from God does is it it, it causes shame. It causes us to hide from God. And so what we've seen now for chapter after chapter, for 25 chapters, what we've been seeing is that God who, who passionately loves us and wants to be in that relationship is he's working to redeem and restore and rebuild this relationship with his creation. And as much as we try to fix the problem, We're discovering that we do not have the ability, that the the price is far too high, that that it is beyond our capacity, our ability. And so uh, uh, part of what we're going to be able to see today is that the solution for this divine problem, we can't bring the solution. And this is why chapter 25 is so important. Now, just to kind of set the context of what we think of where we've been these last couple weeks, Jesus, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen how Jesus has entered into the picture and how he's part of what God is doing to redeem and to rebuild and reclaim his creation. And Jesus, uh, they know there's something different. He is no ordinary man. In fact, when he speaks, they say he speaks like one with authority. And what they're saying is this, is that he's not like the other rabbis who say, you know, rabbi so-and-so and and rabbi so-and-so and they're, they're, they're claiming the authority of these other rabbis as to why they take this position. But when Jesus speaks, he speaks as if he has the authority, as if he's speaking with God's authority and he's speaking things like forgiving sins and only God can forgive sins. And he's calling out the Pharisees and he's calling out the unrighteousness of the religious leaders of his day. There's something different about his message. But everywhere his message goes, there's power. Power is being released wherever he goes. The blind see, the lame walk, the leper is cleansed. In fact, there there, there's uh, stories where where Jesus, he he stands up and he calms the sea. He calms the winds. And his disciples say, who is this guy? Who is this that even the wind obeys him? Even waves obey him. They know there's something different. Armies of 5,000, 4,000, if not more, are fed with just a handful of fish and loaves. And now here we come to the final season, the final kind of closing chapters of Jesus's life. And it says that as we entered into chapter 25, what we begin to see is that he began to take his disciples. He began to walk and to to go away. They, They walked to the outer north region of Palestine, probably days of walking. And they come to this place called Caesarea Philippi. And this is a place that's, it's pretty unique place for Jesus to bring them to. So as he brings his disciples, he brings them to a place that was known for worship, but not the worship of God. It was known for the worship of Baal and worship of the God Pan and worship of, of, of uh, the different Caesars. And this is a place of emperor worship, of, of, of different kinds of worship. And in this place, Jesus is about to ask his disciples the most important question he has ever asked them before. And so we pick up in verse 27 of Mark chapter 8. Jesus says these things. He says that Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now think of this moment. Uh, Jesus begins with this powerful question. Who do the people say that I am? And the disciples are buzzing because of the enthusiastic response that he's getting wherever he goes. He's saying, wow, I mean, some people, they're even saying, you are John the Baptist." come back to life. In fact, we read in the book of Luke that uh, Herod, who was the king, he had had John arrested. He had him beheaded. And when he started to hear of all these miracles of Jesus, he started to wonder, maybe John had come back to haunt him. John was back. He'd come back to life in the person of Jesus. So even King Herod was saying things like this about Jesus. They're saying, gosh, something we're living in one of those days when one of the great prophets is here. Is it Elijah? Is it Jeremiah? Is it is it a new great prophet that's among us? Have you ever you ever stood around greatness? You ever been around a big celebrity and kind of kind of got your you know you were in awe? I remember one day I was I was uh, at a, a Laker game and Magic Johnson passed by, and I reached out and touched the hem of his garment like, <laughs> and I patted him as he went by. I'm like. I just touched magic, John. Like it was like such a big deal. Like there there's kind of this, they're they're, they're just so excited about what is happening. And then comes the question, what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? All they've seen, all they've heard, all the opinions. And now the most important question that could possibly be asked, who do you say that I am? It's the question that all of us at one day face. Who do you say I am? And out of the silence, Peter answers, you are the Messiah. Now the word Messiah and the word Christ are the same thing. You guys you know Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? That's not his, right? So Messiah, Christ is his title, Messiah and Christ. Uh, Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek. They are the same word. They mean the anointed one. And so when someone uh, was crowned king, he was anointed. And so the Messiah would be the one who was anointed by God. It would be this, this king who would be, basically replace all kings, end all other kings, and all, it, it, here's what was believed, that, that, that all these nations were going to rally together against the Messiah, against the Jewish people. And that the Messiah would be this great military leader. He would lead God's people. He would totally destroy all of God's enemies. It would be the largest war in the history of the earth. And afterwards, Jerusalem would be renovated. All the Jews who were around the world, who were dispersed around the world, they would all return home and Jerusalem would once again become the center of the world. They would rule with peace and goodness forever and ever. The Messiah, the Christ, by very definition, is a winner. Victory, glory, power those were the words that went with the Messiah. And Peter says to Jesus, we believe you are the one. You're the promised one. You're the one we've hoped for. You're the one we've prayed for. You're the one who's been spoken of. We begged, we asked God to send the Messiah. And he has, and he has sent his king, his anointed king, his one and only son. We were oppressed. We were in need And God, just as he promised, answered our prayer. And with grace, he sent his son. And and, and in this moment, as Peter reveals this, 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 uh, this title of who Jesus is, we understand something. Jesus is God's divine solution. He is his divine solution. That our divine problem could only be fixed by God. And so God himself has entered into this world to solve our problem. Jesus, the Messiah, has come. The Son of God has come for us to give us life. Now, Jesus does something interesting. He, he affirms this, that he is the Messiah, And then we'll see in these next verses that he he begins to refer, he kind of points back to one of the most important prophecies that comes from the book of Daniel, Daniel 7. He begins to talk about the Son of Man and that when the Son of Man comes with his angels. And in Daniel 7, there was this reference that there would be one like the Son of Man, this divine figure who would come, heavenly host in tow. They would all come together. He would make everything right this divine heavenly figure, and Jesus begins to use that kind of language about himself. But notice what Jesus does. As he's using this language, he's also beginning to to tear their expectations of him apart, that he is not the Messiah they expected, and he is really not the Messiah that they wanted. To be our solution, he would need to suffer, to bring us life, he would have to give his life. Notice the, the next verse, that says this, that he then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he would, must be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, at this point, Jesus is doing something fascinating. It's never been done before this moment. That he is beginning to bring together the idea of suffering and the Messiah together. Never have these ideas been connected by the people. That the idea that somehow the Messiah must suffer would make no sense to the disciples. They they, they couldn't get their heads around it. It it, it was foolishness to them. It was impossible to them. How How could the Messiah stop this evil, stop this injustice by being killed? This is ridiculous. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and notice how strong the language is. It's the same word that we see Jesus use when he speaks to demons. Peter rebukes him. Peter wanted a Messiah like David. He wanted a mighty king. He wanted a mighty warrior. Messiah can't lose. The Messiah can't suffer. The Messiah must be great and powerful. But Peter's been conditioned to think only a certain way. And notice what Jesus says. You do not have in mind the concerns of God. The divine problem can only be solved with a divine solution. And without knowing it, Peter has aligned himself with the enemy. Jesus turns to Peter and in the same strong way, he rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he says. It's time for Peter to get back in line. Now, before you and I put po- point fingers at Peter. What do you do when your expectations for Jesus don't meet up with how your life is going? What, what do you do when you are praying for something and it doesn't seem to be getting answered the way that you would hope for, the way you are, are, are uh, dreaming of? What do you do when the path he has for you involves suffering instead of blessing? What do you do when your expectations about life are falling short and you're asking God to bless you and all he seems to do is, is ignore you? He's not listening. And I began to think about this and I thought, I am, I'm really no different than Peter. I rebuke Jesus. Jesus. I tell Jesus to get back in line with my expectations of him, my expectations for my life. Are we really that much different than Peter? See, Jesus knows the role of the Messiah is different than what we expect. He is going to overthrow evil, He is going to make things right, but He is going to do it through a cross and not a throne. And in this last season of his ministry, he's going to begin to explain and teach and train them to understand who the Messiah is and what the Messiah must do. And this is so important because who you say the Messiah is has everything to do with what it means to follow him. If you think the Messiah is all about power and wealth and glory then that's where your expectations will be. And that's, how, that's who you will look to follow. But if you understand that Messiah has come in humility to serve, to sacrifice, to give up his life, then when he calls you to do the same, you will follow him in that way. And this, is, this brings us to the big idea of this chapter of the story and you might want to go back and read chapter 25 again if you've already read it but but here's our big idea that Jesus our messiah shows us that through the cross we are brought to life it is through the cross we are brought to life the cross through the cross Jesus is going to solve the divine problem and make eternal life with God possible he will enter into that place for us in fact, notice, if you saw this, Jesus doesn't just say, I've come to die. Jesus says, I must die. I must do this. And he is, he is set on this happening. In fact, if you ever read the book of Luke, you'll notice this, that about chapter 9, I think it's in chapter 9, and there's 24 chapters in the book of Luke, chapter 9 on is all about Jesus. It says at one point in chapter 9 that he set his face towards Jerusalem. It means that he set his face towards the cross. Nothing would deter him. Everything else from that point on is him moving and not wavering. He is moving to the cross for you and for me to bring us life. In fact, there comes this moment in his life as we move on from this moment, there will come this moment where he he feels the pressure of everything. And on all the hostility around them, this, this pressure to back down, and he says these words in John chapter 12, verse 27, he says, "He says, "My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour?" No, It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name." Jesus would not shrink from the cross as difficult as it was going to be for him. And and before we simply just praise him for that, we also need to understand that the path of the cross was not his alone to walk. If we are going to be his followers, then we too must choose the path of the cross. And as Luke says, daily, daily. Notice his next words. He says this, Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange For their soul. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus says, If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And at this moment, you and I find ourselves kind of in an important moment because I, I, I think we would say most of the world. Is okay with the warm Jesus, the virtuous Jesus, the good teaching Jesus, uh, the moral Jesus. We even in the church can't appreciate what he's done for us at the cross. But now when he demands of us that we too must take up our cross, that this is not optional. This is where it gets difficult. Notice he says three things. If you want to be his disciple, he says this, we must deny ourselves. We must choose God's will over our own. Not my will, but yours be done. It means to renounce yourself as the most important thing in your life and place Christ there instead. Daily, open ourselves to his plans, his desires for our life. He says, you must take up your cross. And, and this had to be absolutely puzzling to them. Because remember, this is pre-crucifixion. They haven't seen him go to the cross yet. So when he's saying this, all they simply knew was this, that anyone carrying their cross was, was on their way to their execution. And for them, cross bearing became this understanding that to be a follower of Jesus means that, that, that nothing less than giving one's whole self will do. It's a willingness to suffer for Jesus and for others. And he says, follow, follow me. Choose the way I have chosen. And it's interesting if you think of it. Jesus presents a path and Peter presents a path. Jesus says the cross is absolutely necessary. And Peter says that the cross is not necessary. And Jesus points out, Peter, that is not from you That is from Satan. And so when you are entertaining the idea that somehow the life of the cross is not necessary, you too have to demand, get behind me, Satan. And so this morning, I want to ask you as a response, are you willing to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus? Our problem is that we see the cross only as an instrument of death. Instead of a path to life. Jesus gives some, some tricky like paradoxes there, right? He's saying, if you'll trust me, you'll see. If you give up your life, you'll find it. And you and I are thinking, but there's got to be a shortcut. There's, there's got to be another way, right? And we want to kind of sit down with Jesus at the table and negotiate. Uh, uh, when I first started here at the church, I wasn't full time. Uh, so I, my wife and I started this small little business just to make ends meet. And so I had to learn to go in and negotiate some business deals. And I had no idea how to do it. So I did what any smart person would do. I bought Negotiating for Dummies, the, the big yellow book. And I kind of highlighted the things. And I'd go into these boardrooms with these corporate executives. And I'd kind of figure out how to do things. But the best advice came from my father-in-law. He He's the best salesman I've ever uh, seen in my life. And he said this, he said, Bill, once, once the, the other party is willing to get up from the table and walk away, you know they've given you the best they can give you. And so I want you to imagine you and Jesus in the boardroom. You give your spiel. Jesus, I like what you're offering. Eternal life, heaven, your spirit in me. Gifts and abilities that are not my own, they only come because of your power, your presence, your guidance, your leadership. This church, this is good stuff. But there are some sticking points I think maybe you and I should talk about. I am interested in following you, I really am, but deny myself. That sounds like we could work through this a little bit. I'm I'm assuming there's maybe some things that we could look the other way on. And taking up my cross, that that sounds painful, at least uncomfortable. So here's what I'm thinking. I can do church most weeks. Football season, it's going to get a little tender, but most weeks I can do the church thing. And I've got a pretty good job now, so I'm willing to up my daring faith gift. And I'm even willing to stay after and clean up the communion cups. Granted, there's hand sanitizer available afterwards. (laughs) But I think we need to figure something out because this whole cross thing isn't working out for me. And I would imagine that a really long pause would come next. And here's how I think Jesus would respond to you. I think he'd reach across the table. He'd grab your hands. And he'd say to you, as he looked you in the eye, I don't want to lose you. But I have to be absolutely honest about what it takes to follow me. And so here goes, if I give you what you want, I know I will lose you. I love you very much. And at that point, I think you'd probably notice the nail-pierced hands. You would know that those are not empty, easy words. Those are words that are uttered with the utmost cost involved. And I think he would simply say this, I need you to trust me. You gotta deny yourself. You can't be in charge anymore. You can't be God. You have to trust me. And that means you're gonna have to be willing to take up your cross. Not once. Every day, you need to be willing to take up your cross. Trust me. I'm in it with you. I will never leave you I will never forsake you. And I know he'd be that honest because I know he knows that through the cross, there's life. Jesus said this, that he had come to give us life, life that is abundant. And and I, I think one of the best ways that you could describe what Jesus offers you is this, abundant life eternally. Jesus said, I came to give you life, life that was abundant, overflowing. But we also see that that life is everlasting. It's never ending. Eternally means, doesn't mean later. You will someday get this life when you die or when he comes back. It means that that life begins now and it will never end. It will only get richer and richer the more you trust him and the more you walk with him and the more uh, you experience his presence. The Apostle Paul said it better than anyone I know. He said it this way. He said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Will you, will you deny yourself? take up your cross and follow him. I'm recognizing the unique ways that I struggle with denying myself. Willing to struggle, to suffer, to sacrifice by taking up my cross and not just doing it once, doing it each and every day. And so in a moment, our ushers are gonna come and we're gonna end our service in worship And in sharing uh, what the cross is all about. The giving of his life so that you would have life. Jesus, as we'll see in the next chapter of the story. Jesus, on the last night of his life, he took bread and he broke it. And he passed it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. Remember me. He hadn't done it yet. But soon they would come to understand what that meant. He took a cup and he passed it and he said, take and drink. This cup represents my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink it and remember me. And since then the church has gathered week after week for thousands of years around this table to remember that through the cross there is life. In a moment, the ushers are going to pass. This. Make sure you grab both cups. Place them in the little rack in front of you. You'll have time. We have a couple songs that we'll sing together. But, but here's what I want to invite you to do. Listen to the whisper of your heart. Who do you say I am? And this morning, you don't have to be a member of Beach Point, but if you can say you are the Messiah, you're the one God sent, you're the one who has to lead my life, then take and eat, and drink, and remember him. I think what's so fascinating is this, is that the story is all about this incredible, this incredible thing that God has given to you. Here's Jesus. Father, Son, Spirit, they've lived together eternally, joyfully, perfect union, perfect joy, perfect love. So why the story? Why create us? Why go through all the trouble? It is to share that glory. It is to share that love with you. God so much wants to know and share all that he is with you now and forever. That he would go through all of this, all of this to bring you to himself. And so I know you're going to want to like, i want to do this. Wait 10 minutes for that. In these next moments, just encounter him. Enjoy him. Enjoy the God who did not need to do this, but chose to do this, to bring you to himself. And so let's pray. Lord, we just give you this time. We just pray that through your spirit, you'd make real to us once again, what you were willing to do, but what you now call us to do as well. May our faith grow in this moment that through the cross, there is life. May we follow your example. May we follow you in service and in sacrifice. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When you're ready, Uh, eat and drink and remember him.